Hello, you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, your Sunday afternoon news hour. Uh, I'm your host, Jasmine, and I'm here again with Janet. Thanks for having me back, Jasmine. Uh, We are recording this on Saturday, January the 14th, but you will be hearing it for the first time on Sunday, January the 15th, uh, which would have been uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 94th birthday. And this episode will be rebroadcasted on Monday, January 16th, which is um, the day that MLK Jr.'s birthday is honored as a federal holiday this year. Uh, so how are you doing, Janet? How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. Um, it's starting to feel like winter, I feel like, consistently. <laughs> I saw the first snowflakes today of the entire winter this year. Seems really? like it's a little bit late for this area. I caught a few on video, like six flurries. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I saw some maybe a month ago, very briefly, and I was so excited. My cat was excited. I know. I miss having a little snow in the winter. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I guess we can hope and pray. Maybe we'll have more in February or something. Yeah. All right. So on this week's episode, um, for the local segment, we actually have an interview uh, with a community member to discuss um, the current state of COVID. For our national news story, we're going to be discussing a reading of The Sneetches by Dr. Seuss that was interrupted by a school official. For World News, we'll be discussing um, the latest, what do you want to call it, Janet, a coup attempt in Brazil? Yeah, kind of a copycat coup attempt. Yeah, so the latest um, coup, like almost coup that happened in Brazil recently. And we're going to end with some words and reflections on MLK's life and legacy. So here we are first with um, our interview with Jackie Esposito. Uh, So, Jackie, would you mind um, introducing yourself, saying a little bit about who you are and your background? Sure. Um, Thanks for having me on today. Uh, It's really a pleasure to be able to, you know, talk to everybody about my situation and to try to raise awareness about what's happening out there. Um, my, My name is Jackie Esposito. I am a New York resident. I have lived in New York for about 20 years. Um, I lived in New York City for a long time, and I was a Park Slope resident for a long time. Um, I uh, I moved out of Park Slope in March of 2020 when the pandemic hit. Um, you know, thinking it would be a couple of a couple of weeks until I went back, uh, and it ended up being pretty permanent. Um, I moved out permanently uh, about a year or so later, and have been living in Long Island most. Um, most of the time. When COVID first hit, how can you describe a little bit more about what your day-to-day life looked like and how it changed? Well, I'll be honest. Um, You know, I mean, my day-to-day life hasn't changed that much since, um, since like the early days when everyone was um, staying at home and, and trying to avoid contracting COVID. And, and that's because I am high risk. Um, I have incurable cancer uh, that's metastasized to my lungs. So the threat's real for me. And, you know, short, you know, I'm fully vaccinated. I'm boosted. Um, 
but I know that there's still risk. And I, you know, I, I came out to Long Island in March, 2020 and, you know, except for a very short period of time when masks were required and people were vaccinated, like I felt like I could kind of go out and about in the world a little bit more, but since masks are no longer required, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much a shut in. You mentioned how at one point, and I think a lot of us can relate earlier on, everyone had a sense of this is something to avoid. Like there's a risk out there. It felt more like we were all kind of on the same page or mostly on the same page. But now you started to talk about it a little bit, but now that um, non-pharmaceutical interventions like masks and um, other like COVID precautions have waned, um, can you go into a little more detail about how that has changed your life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and just to say, I, you know, my life is from pre, you know, March 2020, my life is totally different. I mean, my I, I no longer have the life I used to have. Um, and that is because there are, there's no mitigation efforts whatsoever. And so, you know, we have... We have vaccines, which is wonderful, but we need to mitigate transmission. And so without doing so, people like me who are at high risk just can't participate in society. Um, You know, I've seen people online who say things like, I've got cancer. I don't want another chronic illness. And that's it, you know. And I'm I'm waiting (laughs) for, you know, the lawsuits to start. Because I do think we have an ADA and, you know, Americans with Disabilities Act problem. You can't just keep people out of society. You know, we filter water, right? We, we have water treatment. Like, we, we need clean air. And I think that, you know, we have a right to it. And until that happens, I don't know what semblance of a life I'll have. All right. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And I definitely, I see where you're coming from because it, it there has been like this, um, the MTA had that ridiculous you do you thing <laughs> with the mask. I think you and I were both on a call, like when you can go like go to the board meeting or something online and, you know, say something to the MTA about, you know, matters before the board. And I, I said something in the overflow room about how you need to bring back the mask mandate. Like it's not enough to just say people can make their own individual choice. Yeah, I mean, I think public transit is, you know, a, one of the best examples of where people with disabilities are are not getting access, right? Um, I haven't taken public transit since March 2020. Um, can't get on the LIRR, can't get on the subway. So, you know, even like when I take a, a ferry to see my, my senior mom in Connecticut, I take a ferry, like I'm like... I sneak in, you're not supposed to stay in your car, like hide in my car because I don't want to get out and like sit in a boat with all these maskless people. So, you know, people want to go to restaurants, they want to go to gyms, you know, sure, go ahead. But if you want to take public transit, you really should wear a mask. And if you won't, then our government needs to require it. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with you because I, as much progress as there has been in the West, as far as like understanding germs and that, you know, you can't see the things that can hurt you. 
it seems like in our day-to-day behavior, so many in the population kind of revert back to like this prehistoric thinking that like, well, this is my friend and I trust them or they look okay. You don't sound sick or whatever. And just not being aware or behaving like they're aware that no, like for one, like you can have COVID even when you don't have symptoms. So it's not just about someone coughing, sneezing and being visibly ill. And also, you know, what happens to you, like maybe something that's a cold for you could be devastating for somebody else. Or like, you don't know what might happen, you know, after you're initially sick in a few years after getting this infection. So yeah, I definitely um, feel you on that. Like we can't really leave it up just to individual choice. It just, that's not how public health works. Well, and we're seeing it, right? I mean, 1.1 million Americans have died from coronavirus. I mean, that's unbelievable. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's not an individual choice. Like we, there's, it's just like wearing a seatbelt, right? Not smoking in, inside. It's no different. Um, and I, I think, you know, to your point about people not being aware, I honestly think the majority of people are not aware of the risks, you know, they don't know that one in five people uh, in America who is who have contracted COVID end up with long COVID. You know, maybe they don't know anybody in their life who has long COVID. I do. I've seen the difference. You know, I have perfectly healthy people who have long COVID. Um, and of course, right, we see study after study now that are showing that's showing that um, repeat infections get more severe. I don't think the general public knows that. And I think a lot of that's driven by politics and, and by, you know, what's perceived as an economic need to, to keep the, you know, keep community members calm and, you know, shopping and right. <laughs> going Absolutely. to restaurants. Yeah, like, there, I definitely agree with you there. And it's something that I have to check myself when it comes to like being angry, like with the day to day person, and I have yep. to kind of go in my mind and stop and think like, for one, because I was a contact tracer from like, it was around Thanksgiving, Christmas of 2020. So that was like a big wave, you know, and for over a year, I did that job. So like, I was in a position where I'm hearing person after person after person who's sick, you know, very different circumstances. So you might have one person who's like, oh, I'm fine. I just had some sniffles. And then the next call is someone whose life has completely been turned upside down yep. um, by getting COVID, you know, because they're out of work or they might have a loved one who's died. So that kind of changes your perspective. And also if you're someone who is seeking out, you do have to seek out the information about what this virus is doing. If you're a, a regular person who you know, you just watch the news at 10 o'clock at night and that's how you get your information. You look at what the president is saying. Yeah. You know, that's how you're getting your information. It's like, we're the ones that look like the weirdo outliers because they're not seeing it, what we're seeing reinforced by the world around them. It's like intentionally, like you're saying, misleading people for the sake of like keeping things going. And it's really it's an uphill battle trying to inform others or try to warn people because it it is kind of like shouting in the wilderness sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, who of course suffers the most is 
the people who don't have the time to, you know, to, to dig in or, or can't read study after study to understand what's really happening. Um, they are looking to the mainstream media. They are looking to their, their elected officials. And none of them are really giving the information um, accurately. It's, it's, you know, you kind of have to wonder, like, how does this end? Because it just keeps getting worse. You know, we now have a, have a new variant that seems to have developed in the Northeast that appears to be, you know, the most immune evasive. Like, you know, we, we've been here, right? <laughs> we just keep beating record after record and never in a good way. It does sometimes feel like we're just kind of in this time loop. And especially with the way, um, China is being talked about now. It's like deja vu, you know, the same going back to trying to scapegoat like one particular place when meanwhile, what are you doing in your own (laughs) home, town, country, whatever, to try to stop spread or track what's happening? Yeah, let's get some tests on domestic flights, right? I mean, there's, there's no logic to require negative tests from flights from China when we've got variants that are coming out of New York. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, not a, not at all. So Jackie, um, what do you want to say to people who think that the COVID-19 pandemic is over? You know, I, I'd say we still have several hundred Americans dying daily. Um, that in and of itself shows that it's not over. The positivity rate, right, has been in double digits for as long as I can remember in New York. It's not over. Politicians are being dishonest. And I know that may sound like tinfoil, you know, conspiracy theory stuff. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, you know. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's like, it, it, the politicians have one goal in mind, right? And that is how can they ensure their own reelection? And I think, you know, I think we heard from federal officials, you know, all along that they're kind of figuring this out as they go. And I think we're seeing that. And I think people have to seek out information and not just, you know, listen to what local or state or federal officials are telling them. Um, you know, social media is a, is a good way to find valid information, which I know might sound silly, but there are, you know, scientists and um, verified experts who are, are really great about sharing their knowledge. Um, there's COVID cautious communities on Facebook, on Twitter, where you can meet like-minded people and share information to try to protect yourself and your loved ones. Um, in New York, there's a, a volunteer-led group called Mandate Masks New York. Their website's mandatemasksny.org. Um, I'd say, you know, if you're if you're like me and you feel like you can't, you know, you can't really participate in society because everywhere is maskless, check out our website because there is, um, check out that website I mentioned because we have a guide of businesses in New York that still require masks. Really interesting to me, one of the businesses that like always is requiring masks or bookstores in New York City, which is fascinating. Um, So, you know, I would just say, like, also don't wait for the government. You know, wear a mask. Wear a mask indoors. They work. Um, Wear a high-quality mask. And, um, you know, continue to protect yourself and your loved ones because it's definitely not over. 
Right. Absolutely. You took the words out of my mouth. I was also going to plug mandate mass. You know, those of us who do understand that COVID is still a problem, you know, it's very important to get plugged in into ways that you can help to protect yourself and educate your community so we can at least try to turn this thing around. Um, so Jackie, do you have any um, last comments on how you maybe see the COVID pandemic eventually coming to an end? Uh, I wish I did. I ask myself that question pretty much daily. <laughs> I just have to take it one day at a time. Um, so any other last comments or things you want to share before we sign off? No, I just want to thank you for the time. And it was great to have the conversation. Um, you know, I think to, to everybody out there who has a platform, you know, do some good in the world and, and get the word out so that people know that they need to protect themselves. Okay. And thank you so much for speaking with us today, Jackie. We really appreciate it. And best of luck to you. I mean, keep fighting the good fight. You too. Take good care, Jasmine. Wow. Thank you so much, Jackie, for sharing your story with us. That's really um, moving and certainly a reminder to everyone um, how they can actually, by wearing a mask publicly, make a big difference for a whole community in America. Yeah. And I I wanted to um, emphasize that uh, the website that Jackie mentioned, it's www.com mandatemasny.org. Uh, they have a really good toolkit for, you know, if you're interested in advocating for more COVID mitigations and knowing where you can go where masks are still required. Um, and one of the resources that I like to go to, like to read about uh, COVID news is nature.com, uh, which is a scientific journal that has a lot of um, medical information that in in my opinion, like for the level of information that it is, I think it's pretty readable and accessible. Um, So I would encourage people to look at that site. I thought Jackie made a really um, valuable comparison in saying that uh, mandatory mask mandate on the public transportation could be compared to something like um, smoking not being allowed in public buildings. Um, just to put it in the perspective of there are already rules that we all live by and kind of without a fight. And this could be another context that's easy enough for everyone to do. And we already had a period where that was in place. So it seems um, like for a lot of people, it could make a really big difference to have that come back. Yeah. And I I think it is important that we hear from you know, she used the term shut in, you know, like you're essentially, if you don't want to be exposed to COVID at this point, because there is so little commitment to mitigation, it's like your only option is pretty much literally to never leave your home because you can't just, when it's all just up to individual decisions, like that doesn't, like she mentioned with smoking, like if you're in a room with one person who's chosen individually to smoke, everyone else is by default going to be exposed to it and they don't have a choice. And exactly. you, know, you have to think of it that same way. You know, I just think, you know, perhaps people understand what smoke because it's something you can see and you can smell. And with a virus, that's not the case, but 
you know, it's something people fought against that too back in the day. It's like, you telling me what to do. I can smoke wherever I want. People fought against seatbelts. And that's another yeah. thing that he mentioned. I, that blew my mind. I, did I you know, know that? Know. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, there's people who fight against wearing helmets on the motorcycles and the, and the bicycles. Um, people don't want to be told to do things that keep them safe. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it's really. So we've been down this road before and it's things that today it seems like common sense, like, well, of course, but at the time there was a lot of resistance. And I think where it's in that resistance point right now, but this won't be the last time like there's an airborne threat or like that there's something with air quality that we have to be worried about. So we need to start making those long-term adjustments now. Right. And it, it does seem like, um, you know, we're kind of at a point in America where people do want to get back to more of a regular routine, do some of the things like going out to public spaces, movie theaters, gyms. And then because that kind of activity is coming back, this seems like a good kind of um, way to mitigate how how that um, communal engagement could actually rise our numbers again. And um, it's, it just seems like an easy enough kind of middle ground thing that, that everyone could be doing, even if they are a little bit more out in the world again. Right. Um, and just as a reminder, you know, we said it already, the pandemic is not over. And the seven day average for COVID deaths in the United States, which is almost surely a severe undercount uh, as of January 13th of this year is 499. Uh, for mm -hmm. New York City, the seven day average is 28 as of January 13th. So, you know, we still are losing people uh, every day of this illness. It's still very important to take it seriously and, you know, think more long-term about how we can at least try to mitigate this and not just pretend that it isn't happening. Absolutely. And at one point I had looked up kind of you know, now that the vaccine has been out for some time, like who, what are the demographics that are the ones being lost to COVID still at this point? And by and large, there's a huge amount of um, the older community in our society that is being affected. And of course, also the immunocompromised people. So it could be people that have done everything they could, get the full vaccinations, get the booster, wear the masks, and yet they're still vulnerable even now. So that's why it's especially important to do what others can to help with them. Uh, so on that note, we're going to go to our first musical break, which is sort of a, a rest in peace um, segment. So Janet, did you want to introduce the first song? Sure. Um, so we're going to be playing a, a Yardbird song called Heart Full of Soul. It's a kind of a classic for that group. And um, in honor, it is in honor of Jeff Beck. Um, so he was one of the great guitarists of sort of classical rock and psychedelic blues. And um, in this song, it was one of the very first Yardbird hits that came out after Jeff Beck had replaced Eric Clapton, who had recently left the group. So here's to you, Jeff Beck. <laughs> okay, this is Heart Full of Soul by the Yardbirds featuring Jeff Beck on guitar. 
You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. Sick at heart and lonely, deep in dark despair. Thinking one thought only, where is she? Tell me where. Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news story. Um, it's There were a lot of like very heavy things that happened this week, as is the case every single week. But I thought that this was um, an important a not so serious story to highlight as far as, you know, someone being like outright hurt or killed. But I think it, it says a lot about the moment we're in right now in the U.S. as far as um, teaching history, you know, battles over what is and isn't appropriate to go over with children in schools, which are, you know, which is extremely important to pay attention to, particularly like as we think back on um, what Martin Luther King stood for. So this information comes from The Dispatch. Uh, the title of the article is Olentangy School's Official Cuts Off Reading of Dr. Seuss Book During NPR Podcast. And it was written by Megan Henry. 
Uh, I'm not going to read the entire thing for the sake of time, but uh, this is the majority of it. Uh, you can always go and read the full article on your own. Shale Meadows Elementary School third grade teacher Mandy Robeck was reading the Sneetches to her class as part of NPR's latest episode of Planet Money about the economic lessons in children's books. During the podcast, which aired Friday, Amanda Beeman, the assistant director of communications for the school district, stopped the reading partway through the book after students asked about race. NPR reporter Erica Barris spent the day in Robeck's class with Beeman for the podcast. As part of the district stipulations, politics were off limits. Six books were selected ahead of time by Barris and the district, including The Sneetches. I don't know if I feel comfortable with the book being one of the ones featured, Beeman is heard saying on the podcast during the middle of The Sneetches reading. I just feel like this isn't teaching anything about economics, and this is a little bit more about differences with race and everything like that. The Sneetches, published in 1961, is a book about two kinds of Sneetches, those with stars on their bellies and those without stars. The plain belly Sneetches are judged negatively by their appearance, so capitalist Sylvester McMonkey McBean makes money selling them stars for their bellies. Meanwhile, the star-belly Sneetches don't like associating with the plain-belly Sneetches, so they start paying to have a machine take their stars off. The Seuss family has said the book was intended to teach children not to judge or discriminate against others because of their appearance and to treat people equitably. It's almost like what happened back then, how people were treated like disrespected, like white people disrespected black people, a third grade student is heard saying on the podcast. Robeck keeps on reading, but it's shortly after the student's comment is made on the podcast that Beeman interrupts the reading. I just don't think that this is going to be the discussion that we wanted around economics, Beeman said on the podcast. So I'm sorry, we're going to cut this one off. Barris tries to tell Beeman that The Sneetches is about preferences, open markets, and economic loss, but Beeman replied, I just don't think it might be appropriate for the third grade class for them to have a discussion around it. On the Planet Money episode, Barris reached back out to Beeman to ask about what happened. Beeman replied, when the book began addressing racism, segregation, and discriminating behaviors, this was not the conversation we had prepared Mrs. Robeck, the students, or parents would take place. There may be some very important economics lessons in the Sneetches, but I did not feel that those lessons were the themes students were going to grasp at that point in the day or in the book. Beeman explained to the dispatch on Monday that the school district agreed to be part of the Planet Money story to feature the great work that Mrs. Robeck does. We do not ban any books, Beeman said. As the Sneetches was being read, I made a personal judgment call we shouldn't do the reading because of some of the other themes and undertones that were unfolding that were not shared that, would be, that we would be discussing with parents, Beeman said. The book touches on racism, segregation, and discriminatory behavior, Beeman said. We are really not about suppressing any viewpoints or dialogues, Beeman said. There were great economic lessons and the conversation wasn't going toward economics. 
Looking back, Beeman says she does wish she had handled the situation differently by talking to Robeck separately to figure out a way to continue the Seuss book and have the discussion geared more toward economics. Barras did not immediately respond to the dispatch's questions Monday afternoon. Wow. <laughs> and I listened to the episode before we started recording, and it's really just as ridiculous as it sounds. Yeah, unbelievable. And I mean, it is believable in, the, in light of the other um, book banning efforts that we've seen across the com- uh, country and in light of kind of the dialogue that's going on about trying to control the narrative in the classroom but still kind of upsetting to hear about something so direct as a Dr. Seuss book that was written for children being considered unfit for children. Yeah, it's just really so... The, only, the first word that jumped to my mind is like, what a coward, you know? Like, how cowardly are you? You know, if a third grader... These were young kids, and like, if you listen to the episode, which is interesting because it's not just about this book, they had a selection of several books that all were for small kids, but there were lessons about business and capitalism and stuff in the story. Mm-hmm. And the way that they were able to make connections, like that's very important. And it's really like a light bulb moment for them when they can take something that they're being read or that they are reading and they can say, oh, it's just like the and make make yeah. a comparison to something else exactly. that means learning is happening and they're connecting things to the real world and the way the person shut it down yeah i was gonna say it's quite telling that it was after the student made a third grader was able to totally understand what the story you know the it's obviously in dr seuss land with different characters but the student was able to really see what kinds of real world things that Dr. Seuss was getting at there. And it's at that moment that she heard the students understanding the story and relating it to their own world. That seems to be when she cut cut it off, right? Yeah, and I don't know, it's like, it could be a matter of, oh, I'm worried about what the parents are gonna say or something because this was going to be on a podcast that is you know, heard around the country. Or it could have been that this this official is someone who agrees with the idea that we shouldn't be talking about rape. But either way, it's just it shows like the chilling effect that these types of bands and you know people showing up in a rabid frenzy over critical race theory or whatever they want to try to call it. Right. Um, it's it doesn't ever stop at like the things you might think it will stop at. It always goes further than that because people start like hedging their bets and of like, well, if this will make them upset, well, that will probably also upset them. So it's better we don't talk about this ever in any way. Yeah, exactly. Try to protect the students from the things that they probably already experience. And instead of talking about things that they experience, just to pretend that they don't happen. And what kind of message does that send? Yeah. And I I wonder how the child felt afterwards, you know, like I'm sure that they can, children are very sensitive. Like they can realize like we were having a good time or like they were engaged. And then all of a sudden 
when I said this, the adults stopped it. You know, what lesson yeah, does that teach yeah. them later about, you know, speaking up or making, you know, having confidence in their ability to understand, you mm -hmm. know, media and the messages in it? Like, that's probably very confusing or like upsetting to them. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I would um I would recommend that you go and listen to the episode yourself. Like if you were to just Google um NPR Planet Money, uh the economics lessons in kids books. It's a, it's a it's a really good episode in general and I I like that they keep in like when this incident happens and you can hear the reporter pushing back like you know, we have a list of all of the ways that this is directly related to economics. So how are you saying that it's not about economics and the official right. really doesn't have an, an answer? It would be very misleading to suggest that um, race and, and social status and all of these complex aspects of society are not integral to understanding economics. All right. So for our next musical break, this is Alabama by John Coltrane. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And with our, net, our global news segment, here's Janet. So the article I'm going to be reading um, just the introduction from comes from Vox.com. And it focuses on the recent um, political attack on the government that took place in Brazil. The title of the article is What Comes After Brazil's January 8th? Bolsonaro isn't going away, 
but Brazil's democracy may be stronger. Article was written by Jen Kirby and was published on January 9th of this year. For months and really years before Brazil's 2022 presidential elections, Jair Bolsonaro sowed doubts about Brazilian democracy and electoral institutions. On Sunday, backers of the right-wing former president proved the potency of that message as they stormed the seats of of government power in Brasilia. The attack proved the strength of the right-wing movement that Bolsonaro helped rekindle may outlast the man himself, even as Brazil's democratic and judicial institutions have responded quickly and aggressively to the threat. At least 1,200 people have been detained for questioning in the aftermath of the riots where mobs attacked the Supreme Court, Congress, and Presidential Palace in the capital. The Supreme Court suspended the governor of Brasilia, accusing him of abetting the violence and a top justice promised to hold accountable all those responsible for the riots, including financers and public officials. Security forces dismantled tent camps set up by Bolsonaro supporters who'd been staked out for weeks after Bolsonaro lost Brazil's presidential runoff to left-wing president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, known as Lula. Bolsonaro never conceded the election, but institutions and politicians, including political allies of Bolsonaro, lined up to validate Lula's victory. Lula was inaugurated as planned on January 1st, promising to be a president for all Brazilians. Bolsonaro slunk off to Florida. But on January 8th with Lula, a week into his term, supporters loyal to Bolsonaro unleashed an attack on the country's democratic symbols, the worst assault on democracy since Brazil transitioned away from a military dictatorship in the 1980s. It was an uprising that was ultimately going to fail, at least when it came to reversing or influencing an electoral outcome. But it was still a very public show of force for a Bolsonaro-ismo, and that maybe have been a victory in itself. So again, that was from Vox.com, and the full article can be read there. Um, obviously a really important topic to think about how Trump and radical um, extremists in our country are not only affecting our country, but are having an influence in encouraging right-wing extremism in other countries. Yeah, and like, unfortunately, like, the this country has such a history of, like, fomenting the coups in Latin America and Central America. It's like these people have such a similar playbook. Like, I don't know if, did you read anything or see anything about how um, it seems as though Bannon was like helping to orchestrate or plan what was happening in Brazil with this? No, I haven't read that. I do know, I did read something that said that the, um, the head of the security in Brasilia, um, who had kind of been newly appointed and who had formerly been um, one of Bolsonaro's top aides, 
was interestingly also in Florida at the time of the attack and had prior to going to Florida changed some of the security structure in place in that part of Brazil. Um, but I hadn't heard about Bannon, so that's interesting. I'll have to follow up with that. Yes, like there, like he's been supporting, you know, the people that support Bolsonaro and helping to sow or putting out their misinformation about the election not being fair and things like this. So it's like I, these fascists, like they see each other across borders and they hype each other up and you know, they're, they feed off of each other and then their mo- their movements just continue to grow because like, I think, you know, they see one and then it emboldens the other to, you know, be even more like aggressive in their approach. Exactly. And we do have quotes and um, social media clips by a number of the people that were present at um, the attack on the, on the Brazilian capital who directly alluded, of course, to the American um, equivalent of January 6th that happened two years ago, saying that they felt just like in America, it was a unfair election. Now in Brazil, they've faced an unfair election. And the article on Vox goes on to kind of talk about um, kind of what the most it, it brings to light some differences between the American capital attack and the Brazilian capital attack. Um, one of the main ones being that um, the attack in America, of course, took place um, while Congress was actively in session determining the election result and, um, you know, put many, many people at risk um, from the violence that was taking place. In Brazil, um, you know, Lula was not present at the time and the uh, Congress was not in session. It happened on a Sunday. And so this Vox article talks about how um, this was very kind of knowingly staged in a way to get the imagery that the right wingers want to have to share on social media to present themselves as these big, bold um, martyrs of their cause. They have, you know, the imagery of the of the red and, or I'm sorry, of the yellow and green Brazilian flag flying, which just like in America, the national flag has become kind of a symbol of the right wing in a way more powerful in some sense than as a national flag. So there's a lot of comparisons to be made, but also um, some key differences. Yeah, and I just, I want to take a step back and um, correct what I said a little earlier. Like, I didn't see anything that said that um, Bannon was involved in actually planning the coup, but there have been, you know, the same way that lies about our elections here were being spread, like, long before the elections even happened. Like, he was also participating in drumming up uh, distrust in the uh, electoral process in Brazil and doing things like calling people freedom fighters um, for attacking uh, the capital and also, you know, voicing support of people who are against Lula. Gotcha. And he's so powerful when it comes to online uh, media and such. So there's um, other comparisons for sure that can be made between who's in Bolsonaro's um, followership and who's in Trump's followership and 
um, you know, how they kind of make the argument that they're the victims when really they're upset to see that other voices are being heard. Um, and certainly a big part of Bolsonaro's um, leadership involved destroying a huge part of the rainforest and um, taking away um, land from indigenous peoples um, in order that um, Brazilians can capitalize on the land and expand their farming and their um, cow industry. Um, and of course, that's another issue where not only does it hurt the communities of the rainforest, um, but it actually hurts all Brazilians and the world because the rainforest serves as a place that actually absorbs a large um, percentage. I think it's 5% of the world's carbon is absorbed by the rainforest of the Amazon alone. And of course, cows and the industry of um, raising cows, um, feeding them from crops from the land actually increases the amount of carbon and methane in the atmosphere. So certainly the switch to Lula um, has a lot of similar resistance to environmental programs coming from the right wing that we've seen here in America as well. Right, absolutely. But, you know, I do think it's a good sign at least that the perpetrators seem to have been dealt with swiftly because like when you don't do that, you then have a whole other problem. So it was grand opening, grand closing, you know, like they did all of that stuff. And like within a very short period of time, you saw lots of them being arrested. Like there was a fast consequence to what they were doing. So exactly. And that kind of touches on the articles um, kind of caption, which is that, but Brazil's democracy may be stronger as a result because it talks about just what you're saying, where um, Lula and his government are using um, the governmental structure to try to address what happened immediately. People are being uh, seized and investigated. They're looking into um, involvement of government officials. Um, and already the governor of Brasilia, who seems to have played a hand in enabling this attack has been removed from office. Right. So, yeah, like, let's, I'm cautiously optimistic and hopeful. Um, I know I was very happy when that piece of shit lost because he's really, Bolsonaro is just beyond the beyonds as far as like being just a disgusting human being that is not for the people, not for the planet at all. So. Absolutely. And of course, now he's walking around Florida as a Florida man. Wasn't he just in the hospital? Prayers down. He just got, he was in the yeah. hospital with some kind of medical thing. <sighs> yeah, he's claiming that it had to do with a um, a wound he received in 2018 from an attack. Mm, sure. But yeah. <laughs> hard to say. Wishing him all the worst and all the best for the people of Brazil that they can, you know, move forward um, front and not go in the opposite direction. Um, Absolutely. That would be great. Yeah. And I just, before we end today's show, I just wanted to say um, a few words about Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I know he's a figure that his name is often invoked and um, 
in my opinion, often like oversimplified or, and like whitewashed. Um, he was born on January 15th of 1929. So he would have been 94 years old today. Uh, and he was murdered at the age of 39 on April 4th in 1968. Uh, and most people, I think, especially from grade school, like people know that I have a dream speech and everything, which was from um, 1963 when he was um, leading the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And I think people tend to associate King primarily with um, racial equality and integration um, and ending segregation as a formal institution and nonviolence, like not, you know, turning the other cheek and so on. Um, but more than that, he was also someone who was against poverty. He was against the war in Vietnam and capitalism more broadly. And those are aspects of his legacy that you don't hear talked about very much at all. And earlier on, like when he, like in the earlier 60s up through 1966, like when he was against the war and everything, he faced a lot of pushback to not talk about um, being anti-imperialist because it was a distraction from, you know, racial equality domestically. Uh, there were powerful people and organizations that um, basically made statements against him, like saying that, you know, no, like the movement against the war should be separate from the struggle for civil rights. Uh, but I will say to his credit, um, closer to the end of his life after 1966, um, he was a lot more outspoken and serious about saying that no, like these, as we mentioned earlier with the Sneetches, <laughs> like you can't separate out um, being against racism, from being against imperialist violence, being against the violence of capitalism and poverty, uh, those things are all connected. So I wanted to recommend uh, for further reading to go to Stanford's Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute website. Uh, that's kinginstitute.stanford.edu to read his speeches and learn more about um, the things that he fought for. Uh, and there's also a very interesting and important article about him by Drew Dellinger on The Atlantic called The Last March of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and just a short excerpt from that. Uh, by the winter of 1968, so early 1968, Dr. King and his organization were embarking on one of their boldest projects yet, a poor people's campaign that would bring a multiracial coalition to the nation's capital to demand federal funding for full employment, a guaranteed annual income, anti-poverty programs, and housing for the poor. Uh, and that was also in conjunction with um, combining, uh, helping to develop a volunteer program to increase peace activism before the 1968 elections and linking anti-war and civil rights work in speeches at that time. Um, but unfortunately, as he was getting more into that work and being more outspoken about it, that's the exact time when he was assassinated. So in his funeral procession, at the very end, uh, the song We Shall Overcome was sung by those in attendance. And to end this week's episode, uh, I'd like to play a, a recording 
of his We Shall Overcome speech. It's a clip from a 1965 sermon that he delivered at Temple Israel of Hollywood. Um, So something to reflect on. Uh, He was a complicated man. There was a lot of nuance to his work and his legacy that is often lost. So please think about how you can honor his commitments in your day-to-day life. Um, Thank you for listening. Uh, This has been Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Please stay tuned for more Brooklyn-based community radio. And here's some words from the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. himself. There's a little song that we sing in our movement down in the South. I don't know if you've heard it, but it has become the theme song. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. Though I join hands so often with students and others behind jail bars singing it, we shall overcome. Sometimes we've had tears in our eyes when we joined together to sing it, but we still decided to sing it. We shall overcome. No, before this victory is won, some will have to get thrown in jail some more, but we shall overcome. Don't worry about us. Before the victory is won, some of us will lose jobs, but we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, even some will have to face physical death. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent psychological death, then nothing shall be more redemptive. We shall overcome. Before the victory is won, some will be misunderstood and called bad names and dismissed as rabble-rousers and agitators, but we shall overcome. And I'll tell you why. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. We shall overcome because the Bible is right. You shall reap what you sow. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. And with this faith, we will go out and adjourn the councils of despair and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. And we will be able to rise from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope. And this will be a great America. We will be the participants in making it so. And so as I leave you this evening, I say, walk together, children. Don't you get weary. There's a great chapter meeting in the promise.